to Tokyo Game Life, a Tokyo-based video game podcast focusing on Nintendo and gaming culture in Japan's capital. Your host Mono here to bring you a slice of gaming life from Tokyo. And the latest big event in Tokyo was the Digital Games Expo, and it's this episode's big feature. I'm joined by now three-time podcast guest Chris, aka the ultra-healthy video game nerd, aka the lead developer of Connie Pro Games, to chat about one of the biggest indie gaming events in the country. What's it like to be a visitor? What's it like to be an exhibitor? We're going to cover both sides this episode. In the game section, oh yeah, there's a brand new Pokemon generation that just came out. I'll give my early thoughts on the open world adventure known as Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. Plus, I've been building a mini army with Tactics Ogre Reborn, and I'll look at the latest news. Let's get right into the feature on the 2022 Digital Games Expo with Chris from Connie Pro Games. This episode's feature is about the Digital Games Expo 2022, one of the biggest indie game events in Japan. Joining me to chat about it is a special guest. So guest, please introduce yourself. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me back on. Uh, This is Chris, sometimes known as the ultra-healthy video game nerd and now known as the director of Connie Pro Games. So good to talk to you again. Thanks for joining me today. For those who don't know, what is the Digital Games Expo? The Digital Gaming Expo is, you know, it is an effectively indie gaming uh, show uh, in Japan. You could think of it as like, you know, comic market but for, you know, just for games, now, supposedly not for comics or illustrators specifically. So hopefully, you know, yeah, it's supposed to be for smaller game makers. Yes, it's in Akiba Square, a place I've never visited despite being incredibly close to Akihabara Station. Now, full disclosure, you actually invited me to this to help you set up a booth. So I did get in free with your help. You attended as an exhibitor and I was just there as a visitor. One thing that really surprised me was how far along a lot of the games were. We had some that were fully ready to release in just a few weeks, others that were years away. Some were just concepts where you played only what I can just describe as a tech demo. I want to hear more about your experience on the other end of the table. How did you discover this event and what was the application process like? Let's see, I think I discovered it because... um... You know, I mean, I I follow, you know, some indie game developers in Japan when I can. And um, there was a game called Never Awake made by this Japanese guy. Uh, he also made Vritra, uh, which was a pretty successful shooter. I think I saw that he was attending and that was maybe how I found out it existed. And um, then I just looked into it and it's like, yeah, it's this, it's, you know, relatively bigger, you know, event for um, showing off independently made games. So I was like, and obviously then it's right in the center of Akihabara. I'm like, well, Mm. hey, you know, if I could get into that, I'll definitely try. And apparently it's so popular that sometimes they have to do like a a lottery kind of, or like, you know, where they just pick from from all the the applicants. Yeah. And whoever gets picked, um, they get to show up. So I, I don't know if there was that many this year, but anyways, I got selected. I got in and that was wonderful, but this was also my first uh, in-person game show ever. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to have to figure out how this works. I kind of just, you know, looked at pictures of the previous year's ones or look at, you know, like comic market to get some ideas of how people set up their, their table. Hmm. Um, just kind of like, you know, cause it's a, it's a big thing here in Japan, you know, these kind of in-person, uh, independent creator events. So I just got some, some, uh, some ideas from the internet and put together what I could with, with, uh, with my abilities and resources. What are some of the challenges you came across when you're exhibiting your game at events like this? 
first of all, I can't draw anything. So when I get, when I literally can't, yeah, it's silly. So when I get, you know, these promotional things made or stuff like that, you know, either I have to uh, outsource it to somebody. Uh, thankfully, I do have kind of the basic, the layers from the, uh, the, the key visual. Mm. So I can actually kind of like rearrange those if I need to. Uh, so I, I kind of made the, uh, the poster for the front of the table, but yeah, I had to like get the, the flyer made by somebody. And then it was kind of like very last minute getting everything printed. Uh, I think in terms of, of actually, you know, getting ready, that was the most difficult part for me just because I've never done it before. Like I mentioned earlier, some games like yours, Violet Wisteria, are near completion, but others really only have a playable concept or an incredibly rough and buggy tech demo. Do you think indie developers should show off their games this early, bugs and all, or should they wait until they have a more polished, finalized version? No, I think it's very brave to have Mm. the courage, you know, to let people (laughs) see your game right that early on. It's very scary to let people see your creation like that at at any point. Mm. No, I think they should. And I absolutely think that, you know, if they feel like there's something going on there where there's a concept that's worth seeing, worth playing, definitely. I mean... Games games get released and are full of bugs, you know? So, yeah. No, I, I think that's really awesome. Were there any surprises in terms of how people reacted to your game? So basically, I showed off um, Demo Version 2.0 mm. at the event, and that was the first time uh, I had anybody had ever played uh, this version of the demo. So I put out the Violet Wisteria demo on Steam maybe about two months ago now. Yes. It is way too difficult. Mm. Basically, it's just that was immediately clear uh, from from all the feedback. You know, the kind of the problem is I'm pretty good at 2D platformers, and also, you know, you're going to be a little too good at your game. You don't realize, you know, what I'm saying like just how right. challenging it is sometimes. So um, that was the feedback that I got. You know, from originally posting that demo on Steam, that just has it's it's a really cool idea, uh, but it's just it's just way too hard too early. So I drastically decreased the difficulty level. I changed some things, some like mechanics, actually, uh, gave the player more health, kind of rearranged some things, decreased the enemies. And still, it was very challenging for hmm. people. So I guess, yeah, in the beginning, I mean, you could say I was surprised. I was like, oh, it's it's still definitely not too easy. <laughs> it seemed like most people, you know, yeah, it is challenging in the beginning, but a lot of people were actually really interested uh, in, in the core mechanic. You know, once you know you start spending a few minutes with it, you know, some people really like got into or like really trying to figure it out. And like a couple of people mm. made it to the boss um, and almost everybody, I think, made it at least to the, the room before the boss. So. So, yeah, it's it's a challenging concept because it's just never been done before. Mm. But but it seemed like the reaction was was pretty positive. Yeah. When I manned your booth uh, very temporarily, a lot of people did comment on the slide. I don't know why. The slide appealed to them, but that's something you really don't think about until people get your hands on the game. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it. I don't know. I guess, do people not add slides like that to their 2D platforms anymore? It seems like such a common thing, but like, yeah, it's, it, it feels good to do. You've still got a few more events to attend before Violet Wisteria launches and maybe some after. What did you learn from Digital Games Expo that you plan on utilizing in the future? So next time it's, you definitely want to have like, you know, visual decorations at your booth or at your table that can be seen from afar, Mm. you know, and I knew that, that I was going to go in and try to like, you know, look at other people's areas and, and pick up good ideas from them. 
Uh, and one thing is definitely you want to have that poster stand behind you. Yes. Uh, you see a lot of people do that, right? There's, you know, because, you know, you're advertising. Yeah, that's definitely something I'm going to do for the next one. It's it's not like an incredible amount of work or stuff to carry around. So I'm definitely going to get, you know, a, a vertical, a B2 size poster made next time. And also, particularly, you know, in, in my case, having like a little like laminated sheet with the how to play the game. Mm, yes controls and stuff that seems like a very good idea mm. uh you know i yeah i saw that at some other tables and uh i i should definitely do that because because my game has this like completely you know never before used kind of control scheme so it would be helpful let's dig into some of the games we saw i think i saw more than you but one i know that we both really dug was ninja or die yeah. i've never heard of it until the expo but you seem to have some knowledge about it what really hooked you about this game I had Ninja Dive, yeah, that was, it was extremely fun. I also learned about that at the exact same time, basically, as Never Awake. There's this program called Indie Game Incubator. I guess it came from Spain. I guess they were probably doing it there first, but now they've got this joint program so that they're doing it in Japan also. So it's, you know, a game developer incubator, incubator system. And uh, so they pick up like five or six games per year. And then hmm. they, you know, help... Um, they help with advertising and like, you know, help them make their pitches for publishers. And there's the, that kind of thing, you know, they connect them with like senior developers and they give them advice about their game. And uh, I watched the the introductory video that revealed the five games they had chosen for the very first one, which was, I guess, last year. That was one of them was Ninja Die. Hmm. And uh, yeah, the dude said he like worked at a video game company for a long time and then quit. He wanted to make it his own game. And, uh, you know, it looks like a 2D platformer. It looks like a 2D Pixar platform. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, that just looks crazy. I'm like, yeah, I, I want to follow that. So finally, I got to play it, you know, uh, at the show. He was right across from me. Yeah, so um, it's different from what you're expecting. Yeah, definitely. You, you literally just, you know, use the analog stick to aim and then jump. And that's all you do. Uh, the attacking is wrapped up in all of that, mm. right? Uh, but, but once you start, you know, feeling it, once you... Um, you know, get that, that rhythm. It's like super satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of like a golf game because you don't control the character with a D pad or an analog stick. You kind yeah. of have like a arc, I suppose, like yeah. a directional arc, and then you launch yourself yep. and you can do automatic attacks if you like bump into an enemy, mm -hmm. but there's also items you use and some other special techniques. So I never really thought of this type of input method for like an action game. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Cause it was like, um, uh... I mean, they called it a roguelite mm. I think in the introductory video. So I was like, I wonder what part of it. I, I was expecting maybe there would be like a exploration aspect maybe, to yes. it. Uh, but I think, I think that part just comes from like, I think managing equipment is maybe a big part of the game. Mm. Probably, I, I have a feeling that's where the, the roguelike title came from. But it's, it's a straightforward action game. It's really just, you know, one small area at a time. Um, very satisfying. Yeah, I agree. Uh, were there any other titles that caught your eye in the short time you had to actually explore? I, I barely got to play anything. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, I was like, I didn't realize it'd be so busy like that. But I only other game that I I played was because I've been watching it also is Gunstream. Mm. Um, in Japan, there's this group called Habitsoft. Yes. So they have two names. They're called Game Impact, but then the 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 company name they use to print on the games is, is Habitsoft. 
Hmm. So they've been picking up some traction because they're making new games for old consoles. Um, they've been making games for like Game Gear and Game Boy. Uh, and just recently, they've ported some of them to the, the Sega Genesis, the Mega Drive. Hmm. Um, but they revealed that they've that someone they're working with has been making this new shooter for the Game Gear. And we're not talking about like, you know, Game Gear style graphics, like they're going to make cartridges, <laughs> you know, right. And so there's, they're finally making this vertical shooter called Gunstream. So I was like very hyped about that. So I went and, and played that at their booth on a real Game Gear. Yeah, I also played it and it definitely looks good for a Game Gear game. Like I'm sure, of course, the graphics are much, much better than most of the Game Gear titles. And it also has like a backlit screen, I think. Maybe they uh, modded it a bit. So there is like a bit of modernity to it, but it does feel like you're playing an old school Game Gear game. Like you're holding the Game Gear, which I thought was really novel. Yeah, it's crazy right now. That game supposedly is being made by the people who made or worked on Game Gear Alesta 2. Mm. Alesta is a very long running shooter series, uh, originally by Compile. Um, So if that's true, that is pretty incredible. Yeah, it's my first time playing a Game Gear in many, many years. And when I was a kid, I thought Game Gear was like a huge thing uh, compared to like the Game Boy in terms of like how big it is. But playing it as an adult, it's like, well, actually, the size isn't so bad. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's doable. It's just those, they just drain the batteries, though. <laughs> yeah. There's probably a mod for that, too, I'd imagine. Um, those are the only games I got to play. Uh, but there was, other, I mean, there was other things I saw, you know, that hmm. I was interested in. Um, there was one called something like Shooting Eats or something like Shooter Eats. I think it's supposed to be a play on words of like Uber Eats. It might have been on the same road that I was in. Um, but it's like, you know, kind of cartoony, cutesy side view shooter, but it's not like a forced scroll shooter. So it's probably mm. more like fantasy zone. It, it looks really good. The other thing that I, I kind of do wish I could have played is the, the group that made rolling gunner mm-hmm. uh, has been making a new shooter. And this time it's going to be a vertical shooter. Uh, I think we saw that was like almost right behind me. Um, yeah, I saw it as well. I really wanted to play that. Uh, but the time, the time will come. Definitely a lot of games I, I would like to play, you know, if I get to go to one of these things, but definitely a lot more, a lot busier than I was expecting. You know, you mm. really got to, you really got to stay there, you know, with the people who are playing the game and, you know, kind of like help them along. I was able to play quite a bit. I wish I could list off every single thing I played, but some of them were just for a few minutes. So forgive me if I don't mention them. There was, of course, Ninja or Die, which I think was honestly one of my favorite games I played there. I also played Dangai no Karumu, which very much looks like a PS2-inspired RPG. The town has a fixed isometric camera, but the field you explore has looser controls and some stealth mechanics. The game looks really nice, and when I asked them when it would release, they said in two to three years. And that's an answer that's not too unusual at an event like this, because many of them are really just getting started. That's incredible. I mean, an independent you know, group or even, you know, one or two people Mm. to make a game with the scale of a role-playing game. I Mm. mean, it's going to take years, right? Yeah. Another game I played, I asked, oh, when's it coming out? And one guy said next year, but the guy next to him was like, next year? You don't mean two years from now? So maybe there's like, (laughs) even within a team, there's maybe some, you know, miscommunication or different ideas. I I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. It's, It's one of the hardest things to judge. Uh, Hmm. you know, when a game is going to be finished, it's even if you're experienced, I think it, there's a million things can come up. (laughs) 
I also played Non-Nupple 9 solely because I thought the name was really strange. It's uh-huh. a side-scroller point-and-click adventure where you're in a hospital. It has a very anime look, but it also has a lot of strange and surreal cutscenes. Apparently, the developer has been working on it for over 10 years, but now it's closer to release. I think he's aiming to release it next year. <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> but I mean, that's t- completely possible. For if, yeah. if you're doing the graphics yourself, mm. sure. <laughs> you, know that, <laughs> you know, you're doing three or four people's worth of work. There was also Uchu Mega Fight, which is a clone of Joy Mega Fight. And it has a very similar aesthetic, like a NES kind of Game Boy look. And of course, nobody has, I guess, attachable arms. It's all like balls. Uh-huh. Um, this game is actually out now and you can play it for free on the browser. But they were selling physical versions. Not sure what comes on the disc, but I did see somebody buy it. And speaking of selling physical copies, right yeah. next to that booth was someone who made a bunch of like Toho themed Mega Man games. So this is not uh, something you're going to find on Steam. So Digital Games Expo definitely has more of a grassroots feel to it, I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that. That's the thing about the Japanese uh, in, independent gaming industry. I mean, you can you can't almost hardly call it an industry. It's mm. just it's a community. I mean, it's a movement kind of. But, mm. but yeah, it's that's why there's you know such a massive number of these little events, I think, is because it's so in-person. You know, yeah, it's so off the grid. There were some bigger publishers that attended, though, like Integreates and Playism. Uh, Grim Guardians was shown off on the fourth floor, but I didn't want to line up, so I kind of skipped that one. And most games are on the second floor, but the fourth floor has more of the well-known indie titles and a lot of VR games. Uh, one that really stood out to me was called Bear Runner, where you hit the top of a Famicom cart inside a Famicom to purposefully glitch out the game so you can beat the course faster. So it will kind of warp your character ahead of the stage uh, via glitch. Uh, it's really funny because you're just slamming your hand on the top of the Famicom. But if you do it too much, it will kill your character. Like the game will glitch out like to a point where you can't play it anymore. So you do need to time it right. And they are timing you. So if you want to get on the scoreboard with the best time, uh, you need to like time it very carefully. I'm not sure about the technology behind it. I mean, it could just be like a touch screen that's hidden under the Famicom, but I'm curious if this game will ever be made available in any way. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was going to say like, is it, is it actually running on a Famicom or I'm not, they- I'm not sure. Like the cart is, it's a Famicom cart. And of course the sticker, I think he just put like his own sticker on yeah. it. And actually you get that sticker to put on like a loose Famicom cart if you win. Uh, but I'm not sure exactly how it works. Somebody else had a very similar concept next to your booth where they had like a box character, like a white yeah. box character, and yeah, you hit yeah. the box and it will control the character. But then it wasn't very responsive. So the guy was like, oh, actually, you can just play it on the iPhone. So he gave uh, me the iPhone to play. So uh, I wonder if there's like some sort of like secret, like touchscreen control somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I wish I could have played that. Were, were the graphics like Famicom looking graphics? Yeah, it was like NES style. And then when it glitches out, it looks like RGB, like kind of lines and, you know, uh, going on the screen. Other games I played, a lot of them were very early in their concept phase. I played Luminous Realms and Sakura Tower, which are really just combat arenas. But according to the developers, they will be full-blown adventure games later on. Uh, I also played Titan Climb, where you climb big moving monsters. So similar to Shadow of the Colossus. This game was really, really early and pretty buggy, I have to say. But it was endearing. 
like you said earlier, to see devs show it off so early. Uh, it's funny that they can just really press a button and then warp you to a different part of the game if something messes up. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, I'm, yeah. You can't imagine what what people have to do for debugging, right? <laughs> mm. So, would you recommend either as a visitor or an exhibitor to attend Digital Games Expo? Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think this is. It's not the biggest indie gaming show in Japan, but it mm. might be the second biggest. It's it's a mid-sized you know game show. Right. Um, I mean, I, I think Inti Creates is probably involved in the the management of it. If you want to travel to Japan or something like that, you know, and you you want to schedule time for it. I mean, it's a little, it's starting to get a little colder right now in November. <laughs> it might not be the most ideal time, but I would absolutely recommend it, man. I mean, hmm. you know, just to to see obviously, you know, independent game creators, you know, with these passion projects, but but yeah, just to see the cultural aspect of, you know, getting your creation out in Japan, I think is so much different than the West. It's like in the West, you you can do everything online and, you know, you can reach your audience mm. if you do it right. Uh, in Japan, it's it definitely things, seems like things are more in person, you know, one person at a time, you know, introduce your mm. game and and all of that. So it's I, I do highly recommend it. Yeah, it's certainly worth checking out if you're into indie games or really just want to see a side of game development you often don't get to experience. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, thanks for joining me today. Where can people find you and find your game Violet Wisteria? Uh, I'm on I'm on Twitter as Connie Pro Games, uh, and Violet Wisteria does have a Steam page. It's, it is called Violet Wisteria. The demo is up there, but the demo is the previous demo. It's honestly mm-hmm. it's way too hard. I don't suggest <laughs> people downloading that one. Um, but I have made the the newer the you know the the refined version, um, mm-hmm. and that's going to go up in the next week or two. Uh, So definitely look forward to demo version 2.0. Great. And the links to everything will be in the podcast description. Chris, once again, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you very much for for coming to the show together and, and helping with everything. That's it for the feature. Now let's look at some games. Once again, thanks to Chris from Connie Pro Games for chatting with me about the Digital Games Expo. Be sure to check the podcast description for his socials and wish list Violet Wisteria on Steam. Well, it's here, a brand new Pokemon generation. I think for people who aren't into the series, they must think, oh, another Pokemon game? But a new generation is a momentous occasion for fans. It means new Pokemon that will enter the canon. So years of seeing them on merch in the anime, on trading cards, and other games. Someone will have a new favorite Pokemon, and a kid will pick up this game as their first Pokemon game, and it will undoubtedly leave an impression. A lot of people say your first Pokemon game is the best one, and while I don't think that's true, there's certainly something undeniable about how the first game you play connects with you. And it goes without saying that this episode's big game is Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, the newest mainline game from Game Freak, and the ninth generation of Pokemon titles. One more until double digits. It was announced earlier this year, much to everyone's shock, considering Game Freak also put out Pokemon Legends Arceus in January. But it's not that shocking if you follow the cycle of games, where a new generation is released every three years or so. And I think Pokemon's tight 
unwavering release schedule is definitely a major talking point these past few days due to the sheer number of bugs and glitches people are experiencing with SV. Most of the time, I would kind of save the technical talk at the end or as an aside. I care more about the game's mechanics, what the developers were trying to achieve, how a game succeeds or doesn't, etc. But the technical issues are certainly very hard to ignore. I don't want to talk about it too much because there are other things to focus on. I will say I haven't had any of the insane glitches I've seen online. I haven't fallen through the map or thrown a Pokeball at two frames per second. But I have seen under the map in Pokemon battles, and characters and Pokemon have phased in and out of existence. I don't really care about a character stuttering in the background, but I do care about controlling my character and moving through menus smoothly. It's undeniable that the frame rate is very inconsistent and the menus are laggy. This absolutely hurts my enjoyment of the game, and I'm normally someone who can look past that. Oh, Link's Awakening dips in frame rate? Who cares? Great game. But it's impossible to ignore here, especially after how Arceus made the Pokemon experience so fast-paced earlier this year. A lot of people have given their theories why Pokemon games have consistently poor performance and lack visual fidelity, but I think the main culprit is clearly the lack of time. Pokemon is not just a game, but it's a machine. You gotta get new Pokemon out there for the anime, trading cards, merch line, and so on. When Sword and Shield came out in 2019, they undoubtedly had Scarlet and Violet on the docket for 2022, no matter what happens. And you know what did happen? COVID. That certainly set more than a few companies back. And while developers delayed games because of COVID, including Nintendo, just look at Tears of the Kingdom, Game Freak could not. I'm sure there are developers working there that would love to have released this game in six months, but until Game Freak either changes their release calendar in a major way or brings on more teams to help develop the mainline titles, janky Pokemon games are just going to continue. Performance bad, they're done. Now I want to look more into the meat of the game. It's an open world Pokemon game. Not a pseudo open world like Arceus, but a real deal giant map you can explore type of game. This is something people have wanted for years, decades even. When Breath of the Wild came out, a lot of people thought, why can't Pokemon be like this? But now it is, conceptually at least. In terms of making a big impressive open world, I would say that they succeeded. After a slow hour or two of tutorials and story, the game then really opens up. You can go anywhere. There's a tremendous amount of freedom in what you can do. The story has three main objectives, gym battles, fighting Titan Pokemon, and raiding enemy bases. When they let you off the leash, you can go knock out the first gym, or you can go fight a Titan Pokemon, or you could go to a completely different location and just catch Pokemon. They show you all the objectives on the map at the start of the game, so you can really pick and choose what you want to do and when. A lot of other recent Pokemon games have been incredibly predictable in where you will go. Black and White is just a big circle, same with Alola. In Sword and Shield, you start at the bottom and then you end up at the top. Here, paths can diverge greatly. Since there's no level scaling, it's not quite like you can fight any gym at any time. But if your Pokemon are level 25, for example, there's probably four or five different objectives you could certainly clear. I'm trying to see how far I can push this, having skipped the electric gym, which is closer to some areas I've cleared as I head for the icy region. The Pokemon I'm encountering are a bit above my level, but I picked way Coco, so I'm hoping if I structure my team right, I can punch above my weight. 
Scarlet and Violet addresses a lot of the concerns about hand-holding and railroading players with its more open structure, and this is an element I think a lot of people are going to praise. The overworld, it's no Hyrule, but it's fun to explore. I mentioned earlier that I'm trying to get to the icy area. Well, I can't swim yet, so rivers are kind of a problem. But by snaking across some bridges and trying out some roundabout routes, I finally managed to get close. Like in Arceus, the area is not driving the player via landmarks or points of interest, but it's driven by Pokemon. You are encouraged to visit new places to nab new Pokemon. See one off in the distance you don't have yet? Well, drop everything you're doing because you're going over there to catch it. Or you're jumping off a cliff to nab it. Since Arceus has a much heavier emphasis on catching Pokemon and item management, I think that game does this idea better, but running around catching Pokemon is still addictive. It can be overwhelming at times, since you could probably spot five different Pokemon you don't have yet in your peripheral vision. Outside of these story missions, it's up to you to plan your path, or examine the map to see if anything catches your eye. I was worried that the game would just have one main city and no towns, but to my surprise, it actually has quite a number of smaller towns and larger cities. They are all very visually distinct with an amazing style. There's a mining town where everyone is jacked, one town filled with art sculptures, a huge modern city with skyscrapers and giant LED ads, plus many, many others. While these places are much larger than I expected, there's really not a whole lot to do in them. Some might have a gym, but after that, there's nothing to do. Most of the shops in the game sell food for the sandwich mechanic. It's pretty surprising how hard they leaned into the sandwich thing. There are dozens of items that you can buy for your sandwich, which at the end of the day just gives you minor buffs. You can get eggs from them, but honestly, most of the time people aren't going to engage with breeding during a story playthrough. A city might have eight shops and seven of them sell ketchup, with another selling socks. There's no side quests, no mini games, no gift Pokemon, no indoor dungeons. It's just kind of baffling that they made these gigantic complex areas, but your interaction with them is so minimal. It's like they made these places so they can just use them in the anime. The Electric Gym City is by far the biggest culprit. When you come across it, you see these huge skyscrapers and spotlights off in the distance. This is something I've always wanted from a Pokemon game, to explore nature and then suddenly come across a bustling metropolis. You will definitely be blown away by how shockingly huge this city is, but there's nothing interesting to find here. You can beat the gym and then leave forever. Weirdly, huge sections of towns are dedicated to the place where you have your gym battle and then are never used again. The towns and the overworld are built on great ideas, but no surprises. Not once was I wandering the world and thought, what is that? Even Arceus, which had smaller self-contained regions, were still filled with a lot of unusual areas and awe-inspiring encounters. Some unexpected Pokemon might pop up in places, but the game is lacking in mystery, which I think all open-world games need to an extent. As for the titular Pokemon, so far I'm liking a lot of the new ones. Cloth is my favorite, followed by Paldean Whooper's Evolution. They certainly jammed in a lot here, both old and new. Pokedex completionists are definitely going to have a heavy workload. The big new thing are the Terra types, which lets Pokemon transform into a single type, and then those moves are boosted. Most just have their first type as their Terra type, but through exploring and raid battles, you can get Pokemon with completely different Terra types, like a Water Jigglypuff. I think this mechanic is far more interesting than Dynamax, as it has more flexibility in how you build your team. You can use it just to boost your Pokemon's move, or to psych people out by having a completely unexpected Terra type. Collecting them is also fun, since raid battles are infinitely improved. Gone are the long, drawn-out battles where you press A maybe once a minute. 
Everyone can attack at the same time now, and the goal is to defeat it before the timer runs out. If you've got a strong Pokemon, you can borderline one-shot the raid, something you absolutely could not do in Sword and Shield. I've had raids end in about 15 seconds. Just get in, get out, and get a new Pokemon. It's ironic that raids have been drastically improved in Streamlined, while most other things still feel a bit sluggish compared to Arceus and because of the performance issues. One thing that seems kind of in conflict with the Terra-type mechanic is TM crafting. Pokemon now drop mats that you can use to make TMs. This is cool on paper, but after 10 or so hours of gameplay, I can only craft maybe 7 different TMs, and none of them are amazing. I assume that maybe they would lean more heavily into giving your Pokemon a wider variety of moves here, since you need moves that are the same as a Pokemon's Terra type to get the most out of it. But it's strangely restrictive. Maybe it's just more useful post-game or for competitive battling, but during the main game it's almost too easy to ignore. Scarlet and Violet is a strange beast for sure. It honestly doesn't feel as fresh as Arceus, but it is giving me a lot of what I've always wanted. You can explore a huge open world and catch Pokemon, plus you can visit places out of order. I mean, on paper the game is what people want, a massive open world where you chart your own path. But it lacks depth, secrets, and is filled to the brim with just weird decisions. Okay, you can throw and aim your Pokeball, but why can't I easily cycle between who I throw out like an Arceus? There are a ton of customization items, but you can't change your shirt or pants. There are more shops than ever, but most of them are for a side mechanic that is not super interesting. Towns have elaborately designed buildings, but you can't go into any of them. I'm having a lot of fun just running around and catching Pokemon like I always do, but Scarlet and Violet is still a bit far from the dream open world Pokemon game people have constructed in their heads. At least for now, I'd put Arceus above SV. I'll keep at it and will definitely share my final thoughts on the game in a future episode. I think we all have gaps in our gaming history. You can't play everything, and with the flood of new games that's getting released every month, it can be a bit hard to dedicate time to something you missed. Fortunately, remakes and remasters kind of reset the clock and let you experience a classic game with modern conveniences. Plus, you can play it along with everyone else at the same time. And with the latest remaster of the original Tactics Ogre game, Tactics Ogre Reborn from Square Enix, I finally have an excuse to try out what many proclaim as one of the best SRPGs of all time. I consider myself an SRPG fan. I got really into the genre during the PS2 days thanks to Nippon Ichi's anime-fueled games like Disgaea and Phantom Brave. Of course, there's also Final Fantasy Tactics, and I picked up the first Fire Emblem on GBA, but didn't get back into the series until Awakening when they made Permadeath optional. SRPG is not really a genre that sees a ton of releases each year. There are certainly strategy games like XCOM, but I want the more traditional build an army and booster stats while moving them on a grid type of gameplay. I want to lean a bit more into the RPG than the S. We did have Triangle Strategy this year, which was a wonderful balance between tradition and innovation. But Tactics Ogre brings us the raw, classic SRPG experience. Not surprising since while it may not be the first SRPG game, it's definitely one of the grandfathers of the genre. After playing it for just a few hours, Final Fantasy Tactics owes a lot to this game. Tactics Ogre Reborn is a remaster of the PSP remake of the original Tactics Ogre game for Super Famicom developed by Quest, which never released in the States. You might be wondering, is Tactics Ogre and Ogre Battle the same franchise? And the answer is, yes, I guess. You could consider Tactics Ogre to be a spin-off of Ogre Battle, since that game came first. 
but most consider TO to fall under the Ogre Battle franchise. They've switched off each game. There was Ogre Battle on Super Famicom, then Tactics Ogre for Super Famicom, which is this game, then back to Ogre Battle for N64 and a Neo Geo Pocket game, then Tactics Ogre for GBA. There technically hasn't been a new entry in the franchise since the GBA game all the way back in 2001, so it's really take what you can get for fans of the franchise. I did play Ogre Battle 64, but admittedly I had no idea what I was doing as a kid. So I'm going into Tactics Ogre quite fresh. I'm still in Chapter 1, but there's a lot I like about these early battles. Each stage does feel quite unique. You have your typical stages where you just inch closer to each other, but some have unique enemies and objectives. There's a stage where you're fighting a necromancer on top of a castle, and you have to exercise his minions after you wipe them out so they don't respawn. The AI is also quite clever and will rush your healers ASAP, so positioning and focusing your attacks on specific enemies is incredibly important. I mean, it is an SRPG, you would hope that positioning would be a big part of the game, but I am impressed how smart the AI seems to be for what is essentially a 16-bit game. How is Tactics Ogre totally different from the other SRPGs? It's hard to say because so many games were inspired by this, so a lot of the unique elements were stripped out and slapped onto other games. The director of the original game was Yasumi Matsuno. Yes, that Matsuno. The man behind the Ivelisse games, including Final Fantasy Tactics. If you've played FFT, a lot here will seem incredibly familiar. Grids, equipment, unit classes, a grandiose story with a lot of hard-to-remember names, it's all here. There are some elements in Tactics Ogre that didn't end up in FFT, though. One is the chariot system, which lets you replay turns for a small experience penalty. This is very similar to the time rewind in Three Houses, and it's a great feature considering that one move really could set you back or lose the battle. No one wants to waste 20 minutes and get nothing from it, so having this option is a blessing. Another interesting element are the cards that can be found on the field that give temporary or permanent buffs. Both enemies and allies can pick them up, so the scramble for one that suits your character keeps battles unique on replays. Your units are also a bit more disposable than the ones in FFT. In story battles, there is a permadeath mechanic. If a character's HP hits zero, they will be knocked out, and it takes about three rounds for them to die for good. You don't encounter this mechanic if you're grinding training battles, so that is a positive. Honestly, I'm not a big fan of permadeath. I mean, I lost my main mage character during a particularly difficult battle. Yeah, you can easily get another one, but your army certainly seems a bit less personal than in FFT or the Nippon Ichi games. On the plus side, you can get a wide array of interesting units. Similar to Fire Emblem, you can convince enemies to join your side, including monsters. I haven't had a chance to do so yet, but I have learned skills to talk to fairies and dragons to convince them to join my party. Every good army needs a dragon or two. I'm still very early, like I said, chapter one, but so far it certainly feels like FFT hard version. You don't hit for a whole lot, and the AI loves to target your most vital units. I wonder if it's going to just stay the course, or will it open up with its mechanics as I keep playing? But even if it is incredibly close to FFT, that's not a bad thing at all. We need more games like that. Visually, the game is quite nice, with those stocky chibi units. However, Square has smoothed out the pixels, and there's no graphics options. It's certainly not as bad as a lot of the other pixel smoothing I've seen in other games. It's not quite Vaseline tier, but I prefer the chunky pixels. There are some other gameplay changes for the remaster. For example, instead of having one level for a class as a whole, 
like a warrior level. Instead, it focuses on just unit levels, which gives players a bit more flexibility in their characters. I think they could have done a bit more when it comes to changing elements, though. For one, when you attack an enemy, it shows how much damage you would do. Like, it will say minus 46 HP under your character. I would love to have seen this displayed on the enemy health bar, like in Fire Emblem, so I don't have to crunch the numbers. I often have to look at my damage attack, then the enemy's HP number to see how effective it is, when just looking at a bar going down would be way quicker. The PSP remake came out in 2010, which doesn't seem like that long ago, but hey, that's over a decade. UI has improved a lot since then. I'm certainly going to stick with Tactics Ogre Reborn in between my Pokemon bouts. Many proclaim it to be the best SRPG of all time, so I want to see if it lives up to that hype. I don't really have any big games I'm planning on picking up until Fire Emblem Engage, so in these cold winter months, I can pass the time by moving my little guys across little squares. That's it for games, now for the news. We're closing out the year, so most publishers are saving their big announcements for 2023, but there's still some interesting tidbits to talk about. Nintendo had an Indie World presentation a few days ago. Directs are done for the year for sure, but it's nice to have something to look forward to even in the final weeks of 2022. The biggest game was the long-awaited Sports Story, the sequel to Golf Story. That's the title that hit it big early in the Switch's life when there was very little competition. Now you certainly need something a bit more to stand out amongst the thousands of games. Sports Story seems to expand upon the concepts in the first game, but goes even beyond that, blurring what is and what isn't a sport. Another title that stood out for me was Oni, Road to be the Mightiest Oni. I played this game back at TGS, and at that time, it was only announced for PlayStation. You play as a tiny little Oni in a Japanese-inspired, cel-shaded world. It's very Okami-inspired, so fans of that game might want to put this on their radar. Others that stood out to me were A Little to the Left, which is an object-arranging game that's out now, the surreal card game Inscription is finally coming to the Switch, and Rogue Legacy 2, a game I swore was already on the hardware. I also spotted World of Horror, a menu-driven turn-based roguelike that's inspired by the works of Junji Ito. It very much looks like Uzumaki and other horror games on the Wonderswan, so that's a very unique inspiration that not a lot of other games cite. It's been on Steam Early Access for years, but I always like to wait for the 1.0 version, or just the Switch version. That game will be out next summer. I was hoping for Wildermyth, but I'm sure that game will hit sometime in 2023 but there were more than a few indies to slap on your wishlist. Nintendo posted their Q3 results for 2022. The big thing to look at was obviously Splatoon 3's sales. It sold 3.5 million the first weekend in Japan, and after three weeks, it hit 7.9 million worldwide, with the Japanese numbers topping 5 million. It's pretty wild to see a major Nintendo franchise actually sell more in their domestic market. I can't think of any other major franchise where the Japanese sells borderline dwarf the international ones. But it's a legit cultural phenomenon over here. And speaking of games with a cultural impact, Animal Crossing New Horizons is now the best-selling game in Japanese history. Not year, not generation, history. It's topped 10.5 million units, surpassing Pokemon Red and Green's 10.3 million. In the Wii U era, I don't know how many people thought, oh yeah, Nintendo is just a few years away from releasing the best-selling game in Japanese history and crushing the best opening weekend record. What a remarkable comeback. But hey, Nintendo always makes good games, even at their lowest points. 
so it's only a matter of time before people notice. Xenoblade 3 also sold 1.7 million copies in about two months, which makes it the fastest selling game in the series. Kirby is also at 5.2 million, making The Forgotten Land the best selling Kirby game ever. So records are being broken left and right. Oh, and Nintendo Switch Sports is over 6 million. It's one of those games that is just going to keep quietly selling. A side note, golf is coming this month, so I will pop back into the game to try that out. For hardware, Switch sold 3.25 million, down from last year's 3.83 million. This has been the hot button topic for 2021 and this year. Has Switch reached the saturation point? Is it just going to keep selling less and less because the audience is already satiated? Does Nintendo need to release new hardware so they don't lose momentum? I mean, new hardware is coming. I dare not predict what Nintendo does, whether it be a pro or a completely new generation, but I think sometime in 2024, we are going to see Nintendo's next generation of hardware. But is the Switch successor doomed to sell less than the Switch? You can kind of pair up generations with Nintendo. NES and SNES, both 2D consoles. NES sold more. N64 and GameCube were 3D consoles. N64 sold more. Wii and Wii U focused on motion control and unique input methods. Wii definitely sold more. Even among handhelds, Game Boy tops GBA and DS tops 3DS. So will Switch 2 simply sell less than Switch 1 until a new conceptual reboot puts Nintendo back on top? Obviously there isn't some hardline rule, but it's interesting to see how Nintendo innovates then iterates but the iterative hardware always sells less. A lot of people want Nintendo's next piece of hardware just to be a Super Switch, but where do they go after that? We're probably a decade away from that answer, but we'll see. Japan has been getting a lot of exclusive merch recently, especially for Pikmin. Pikmin 4 was announced a few months ago with a shiny new logo, and they have slapped that logo onto everything over here in Japan. Folders, drinks, plushies, bags, if you want to own that logo, you can. Some of the more unique Pikmin merch include vases shaped like the Pikmin so you can grow your own flower, plus Pikmin hoodies complete with the stem on top. Not sure why all this merch is coming out now since the game is probably a year away, but I know they want to keep pushing Pikmin Bloom, so maybe that's driving all this new merch. The Nintendo Osaka store recently opened up, so there's probably been a big push for new merch to drive sales there too. And speaking of new merch, Yoshi is also getting new stuff like a tea set and Yoshi egg plushies in multiple colors. And since Pokemon is out, we're getting a lot of collaborations to celebrate the new generation. Mr. Donut has Pikachu shaped donuts, including a fun looking snowman Pikachu, and 7-Eleven has Pokeball Onigiri. Really the wrapper is just shaped like a Pokeball, otherwise it seems to be just a normal rice ball. If you live in Japan, Onigiri really is the catch-all multi-purpose food that gives you some energy. It can be breakfast, it can be a midday snack, it can be your dinner if it's midnight and you haven't eaten anything yet. It can really do it all. Starting on December 15th, Parko Shibuya will host the Mother Museum exhibition featuring art and merch from the Mother series, aka Earthbound. I've been to a Mother pop-up shop a few years ago and there was one during Golden Week this year, but I couldn't attend because it had limited entry. So I'm hoping I can check this one out. The main focus of the exhibit will be displaying screenshots of the scenes from the Mother series. Mostly just pixel backgrounds of famous locations. This is so specific, but it's awesome to see these very obscure concepts have a home in Tokyo. That's why I love Tokyo so much, 
and wanted to start this podcast because you can really see and do anything here, no matter how niche it might be. Now the Japanese gaming phrase of the week. This week's phrase is Batta, Batta. It translates to grasshopper in Japanese. This refers to a person in a fighting game who can't stop jumping. I've mentioned this before, but you always want to jump in fighting games, but most fighting games are designed to punish you for doing so. We need an all aerial fighting game is what I'm saying. Once again, Bata. And the Japanese tweet of the week. I picked one from Siru Biakos. It's a shot of Pokemon ads from the Hankyu department stores in Umeda, Osaka. The highlight are the stairs that make a big Pokemon mural. I've seen a few other types of these stair murals in Japan, including a cool Eva one in Hakone. I don't know who thought of using stairs as a big ad, but I commend them. I honestly haven't seen a ton of ads for Scarlet and Violet in Tokyo compared to Splatoon 3, but the new starters were on the 3D screen in Shinjuku, and that's the best ad, so maybe Pokemon will topple Splatoon 3's opening weekend solely because they got that primo ad space. As always, the tweet is in the description. That's all this time. Thanks as always for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app. Leave a five-star review as well. It really helps with visibility. This podcast is also available on YouTube, so like and subscribe there as well. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search for Tokyo Game Life or find the links in the podcast description. If you like the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and on social media. If there's anything you want me to talk about or cover, don't be shy. Just message me on Twitter. The next episode will be Sunday, December 4th. Believe it or not, this podcast is now one year old. I just want to say thank you to everyone listening. Whether you've listened to every episode or just 10 seconds, I really appreciate that people are taking the time to listen to what my guest and I have to say. I'm really proud of what I've put out, and I'm looking forward to another year of podcasting, talking about some awesome games with some great people. I did think that the sequel to Breath of the Wild would be out by the time I hit my one-year anniversary, but hey, can't win them all. See you next time. Matane. Matane.